Welcome everybody, Andrew Holochick here, and I cannot tell you how excited I am to be hosting our guest today, uh, my friend Evan Thompson. We, we've been sending emails back and forth probably for six or seven months um, to arrange this, and he's been extremely generous to, to give some of his time and offer his tremendous um, expertise and scholarship on these topics. So I can't wait to dive into some really juicy material in uh, this upcoming session. But I, of course, want to introduce Evan, and I will do that in a more formal way. And then we're just going to let this thing run and see where it takes us. So Evan Thompson is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia, but he is also an associate member of the Department of Asian Studies and the Department of Psychology. He's the author of many books, including Waking, Dreaming, Being, Self and Consciousness and Neuroscience, Meditation and Philosophy, Mind in Life, Biology, <clears throat> Phenomenology, and the Sciences of Mind, and co-author of The Embodied Mind, Cognitive Science and the Human Experience. His latest book, and I really want to talk a little bit about this at the very end of our program, is uh, provocatively entitled, Why I Am Not a Buddhist, which is be available from Yale Press in January. So Evan, thank you so much, my dear friend, for taking the time to join us. What a delight. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I, I have to share with, with our audience, um, we met under the most interesting um, circumstances. Uh, you may recall it was at this utterly unique event um, that was hosted by Richie Davidson and this, his amazing center for the investigation of healthy minds. And the reason I'm going to say just a little bit about this is because the meeting was actually resonant with part of what we're doing in our nightclub charter, which, which I'll give you a brief review on. And for our listeners, what we did here was at the behest of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, he had asked Richie Davidson to partake in an extraordinarily difficult um, study both culturally and uh, scientifically um, in an effort to study what the Tibetans refer to as Pukdam, which is a kind of post-death meditative absorption. It's, it's wildly esoteric, um, and the collection uh, was really extraordinary. We had neuroscientists, we had philosophers, we had um, Tibetan medical doctors, um, meditators, mystics, and, and basically anybody we could pull in off the street. Um, it was an extraordinary event. And so I had the great good fortune of, of meeting you during that occasion. And uh, I don't know about you, but that stands out for me as truly one of the inimitable events of my recent uh, couple of years. <laughs> yeah, that was an amazing event. So I guess that was back in, like, I don't remember, 2010 or 2011, maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I wrote about it in the chapter on dying and death in my book, Waking, Dreaming, Being, and um, that that was an amazing event. Yeah, and and, and that, as you say, that's where we met. And I, I was back in, in the Madison um, about a year ago and had a chance to hang out with Richie. And actually, the anthropologist who is now on site, um, I'm not sure you're aware of this, um, Evan, in India, with all you know the gadgetry that they have out there, trying to collect this data that um, if and when it can be substantiated in kind of Western um, ways, really, you know, kind of the prescience of His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a paradigm buster. I mean, it really does expand um, the kind of myopic lens that the West has on what mind is and how it expresses itself and things like death. Um, 
But anyway, you know, maybe we can circle around that. That's that's such a fantastic topic. But I want to get back to a couple other things with you to at least launch this this conversation. And one is, first of all, my friend, I want to applaud you for the extraordinary contributions that you've made and, and certainly the influence you've been in my life. I think you're one of these rare beings um, who possesses a truly open mind and has the ability to tolerate um, open questions in uh, very much in the spirit of your mentor, um, Francesco Varela. And you are you are uh, kind of a, an exemplar of the scholar practitioner. Um, you, you walk the talk, or I should say you sit the talk. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you know, your text, um, I want to start by talking a little bit about it. Um, embodied mind is a lead into waking dreaming being but waking dreaming being if if there was a core text um that i had to recommend for our audience this would be it because this this magnificent opus um covers such an extraordinary array of topics and is every page is just packed with insights that for our listeners i cannot recommend this book too highly it is um and I can't tell you how many times I've read it and studied it. And every time I go through it, I discover more. And so let me just tell you I mean, very briefly what we're doing with our nightclub adventure. And then I'll turn most of this over to you. But part of what we're doing is um, designing a kind of a an online um, international forum, you know, virtual university, virtual monastery, whatever you want to call it, where we can support the nocturnal adventures of Oneironath, you know, those who are willing to um, explore the, the nocturnal mind, which to me is just subtle states of mind. That's what's revealed in the journey. And in the back of our nightclub, we have playfully what's referred to as night school, which is basically six kind of tracks or curricula where we create a container for this exploration. The first one is the science and medicine of sleep. Then there's the daily meditations, which include um, classic mindfulness, shamatha vipassana, and then the practice of illusory reform. Um, and then we start this this kind of four-part track of the nocturnal practices themselves, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, sleep yoga, and then bardo yoga. And then in my schema, Evan, the way I kind of map these out is in a somewhat Hegelian approach where um, dream yoga transcends but includes lucid dreaming, uh, sleep yoga transcends but includes those two, and then bardo yoga transcends but includes all three. So as, as that is a, as some preparatory comments, I would love to start with a, a brief summary, and I know it's difficult to summarize such a profound text, but the work that you co-authored with um, Francesco uh, Varela, you know, the really eminent um, neuroscientist and, and really the kind of the father of um, neurophenomenology, and then Eleanor Roche, The Embodied Mind, this book has, has really been a landmark text in the cognitive science sciences. And if you could, um, Evan, as a kind of a prelude to where I want to take this conversation with you, is talk to us a little bit about the inactive view, what inactivism um, really represents, why is this such an original contribution, and in particular, um, as, as I hope to unpack with you, how we can use these inactive tenets to understand um, the construction of this thing we call um, self. So is that a, a reasonable place to start? Yeah, that sounds great. So, um, so let me just start by thanking you for the, you know, very generous words you said about, about my writing that, you know, that, that really means a lot. And it's, you know, it's great to get that kind of, um, 
that kind of feedback and and response it you know it it it's very inspiring to to be to hear something like that and to you know take that and go on in in new writing and new work so so thank you for that i really appreciate that um so with with the book the embodied mind so that that book actually we began writing that book in the mid 1980s uh 1986 is actually when we really first started writing uh Francisco Varela and I, and Francisco Varela was a was a neuroscientist and a practicing Tibetan Buddhist, very very pioneering scientist, known for for a lot of original theoretical and experimental work in a number of different areas. And the basic um, the basic reason we started writing that book is that cognitive science was uh, you could say it was really um, emerging. And, and exploding in a way in the 1980s. And by cognitive science, what we mean is the, the interdisciplinary examination of the mind and its relationship to the brain and the body using the tools of neuroscience and computer science and psychology and philosophy, linguistics. And one of the things that, that cognitive science was really making clear is that what we call the mind or the self um, isn't a thing. It's a collection of changing and interrelated processes, and that's in a way a very profound insight. But it wasn't it wasn't being connected back to what mind and self are for us experientially, or or you could say uh, phenomenologically in terms of you know how we live our experience and the various structures that our experience um, takes for us. And so we were concerned to kind of, to, to build a bridge between the, the the scientific perspective and the experiential perspective, and then the question was, well, how exactly to do that? And that's where Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist uh, meditation practice entered the story for us. Is that the 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 Buddhist philosophical view of mind was always one that saw the mind as not a thing, but as a collection of interrelated processes and so we wanted to take but that was grounded in a in an experiential perspective it wasn't it wasn't it was a theoretical perspective but it also had an experiential dimension so we wanted to we wanted to draw from the resources of that tradition in a way that could um, feed into and enrich cognitive science and the way that that culminated for us in this idea of inaction was to kind of develop a, a line of argument drawing on both cognitive science and Buddhist thought, where instead of seeing the self as something fixed and the world as something fixed and the relationship between them being um, the self is representing an independent outside world, to see them as both interdependent and co-emergent, where meaning was, as we say, enacted or created through that interdependency. So the way I just stated it now is very abstract, but we tried to illustrate that through a whole bunch of concrete examples in um, how perception works, um, how action works. And we use the term enaction to mean, you could say, cognition as embodied sense-making rather than as the representation of an independent outside world by an independent inside mind. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and, and oh my gosh, you're already hitting on so many topics that we could really um, Dr. Riffon, one is this, you know, this idea of 
I mean, in a very real way, I think you could argue, and, and you do in Embodied Mind, when you bring in the tenets of uh, dependent origination and the 12 Madonnas, this is another way to talk about um, dependent origination slash emptiness, kind of joining the, the best of the East and the West, and, and this somewhat unsettling notion about how fundamentally nothing is fixed. Uh, it's not just self or other, it's, it's any phenomenal display arises in this vast interconnected nexus of causes and conditions. And, and this, you know, as you were also pointing out, Evan, lest we think this is some like um, abstract philosophical parlor game, this has tremendous implications for how we live our lives and how we relate to ourselves and others. And, and also, you know, the kind of the double entendre of how it is that we literally make sense of reality that, and this is where I want to take this idea of an activism um, and, and kind of both this topic into you know, the practicalities of our lives, um, this process of, that you talk about quite extensively in Waking Dreaming Being of I making, um, how it is that we go out in usually a completely unconscious, i.e. non-lucid way, and are constantly co-creating our um, entire war of reality, both self and other in this kind of elegant dance, um, however unconscious it may be, that can either give rise to a great deal of suffering if, if it remains unconscious, because then we're just kind of prisoners of this process, or if we can bring these unconscious processes into the light of awareness, and this for me is how I use the word lucidity, I, I usually, not usually, when I play with lucid dreams, I'm more interested in lucid principle, um, the lucidity principle altogether, the awareness principle. So let's go a little bit further with this. Let's talk a little bit about how it is um, neurologically and then even, um, you know, in the resulting phenomenological expression, how it is that, that we literally go about making sense of our world um, and unaware that we're actually doing so. Yeah, so, well, that's a huge topic. Um, so the way that I come at that in Waking Dreaming Being is really through, as you say, um, thinking about how our sense of self is constructed. And I use the term eye making for that. And that's a that's actually a more or less literal rendition of the uh, Sanskrit term ahamkara, which is used uh, throughout uh, different Indian philosophical systems, understood in different ways by those different systems, but generally refers to the, the how the sense of I is uh, constituted or created um, or or you you might say dynamically put together. And in Waking Dreaming Being, what, what I'm specifically interested in is how our sense of having or being a self shifts across the whole sleep-wake cycle of, of consciousness. So for example, so the, the framework I use to talk about this is to distinguish, and here again, I'm drawing this from, from Indian philosophical traditions, is to distinguish between um, awareness the, the changing contents of awareness and then ways that um, various contents get identified with as I or me or mine and others as not me or not I or not mine. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of division or cut made within awareness with regard to contents that are identified with as self and those that are then you could say disidentified with as as not self. And what I'm interested in is how that, uh, I see that as a dynamic process. And so how that changes across, um, let's say, uh, 
waking perception where when you're uh, very much engrossed in, say, uh, a kind of um, task that requires perception and movement and, you know, it might be driving or it might be playing tennis or it might be tapping at your computer, you have this kind of an absorbed sense of selfhood that's very much grounded on the feeling of the body as self. Mm -hmm. But then if you, uh, if you start daydreaming or mind wandering, then the contents that you're generating are mental contents that are, you could say, decoupled from that immediate perceptual context and that are drawing on images from memory, images that you project into the future. And they're purely mental images, but you identify with them as something that is you, both in terms of, you could say, what's presented in the image. So you might have an image of yourself in memory, but also the experience of, of imaging as a mental process. It feels as if it's yours, but it's happening in this, in this kind of mental arena that psychologists call mental time travel, where you project yourself into the past or forward into the future. And of course, meditators are very familiar with this. So if you're, if you're sitting in meditation and maybe you're practicing a kind of, you know, mindfulness of breathing, well, as we all know, you know, the mind generates its own kind of spontaneous contents. And many of them are images of things that you immediately feel affectively and cognitively identify as self, but they're within this uh, mentally created space that projects you into the past or projects you into the into the future. So that's sort of one dynamic of eye making in the just in the waking state, which is the difference between you might say sort of absorbed embodied activity with a very bodily grounded sense of self, and then a sense of self that's like the mental spinning of a of a of a tale or of a story and then we can think about what happens as you start to feel drowsy and as you fall asleep and that might happen in ordinary night sleep or it might happen in say the context of sitting meditation and there uh especially if we are thinking of trying to be as attentive to what happens as possible. So not just kind of crashing into sleep, but being very attentive to the way that the, the transition from waking into sleeping is actually quite uh, extended and has a, a sort of fine-grained texture that we can examine that psychologists call the hypnagogic state, the state mm -hmm. leading into sleep. Well, there we have the same kind of mental content generation process happening. Um, but there's a sense of absorption and a kind of dissolution of self other boundaries that happens, what some psychologists call a kind of dissolving of, of ego boundaries. So that sense of eye making then is in a way you might say um, it's shifting or it's coming apart so that it's not this very subject object kind of structured experience. It's more of an absorbed, almost rolling uh, you might say spellbound or kind of fascination with with images, and then you know there's a there's a drop into sleep, which is uh, a kind of um, you might say a, a kind of blackout, as it were, and then in the dream state, um, 
if it's a vivid imagistic dream, that sense of the word dream, then that sense of self reemerges where, again, there's a distinction between what's self and not self, but now within the context of the dream state. But the dream state is, of course, entirely a mentally generated content. And then in a lucid dream, you, you become aware of that. And so the sense of self shifts again. So these are the, th th this is what the term eye making for me really encompasses is, is a way of tracking all of those changes in the sense of self and how they're very much being dynamically created through uh, mental activity across the, the, the sleep-wake cycle. Yeah, that's fantastic, Evan. And it's really exactly confluent with what um, my aspirations are with our little nightclub venture, because really, you know, I, there's a lot of kind of stealth help or code word going on with what we're doing. You know, darkness is a code word for ignorance of the unconscious mind. Lucidity is a code word for awareness. Dream, and this is what I'd like, like to talk to you a little bit about later, because you talk um, and ask this question and attempt to answer it in your book. Um, you know, what is dream? Um, on one level, for me, dream is manifestation of mind. But what what I think is so um, kind of resonant here is this is exactly the way I use these nocturnal practices as, uh, I don't know, excuse isn't the right word, but as a medium to explore the construction and deconstruction of the self-sense as it transitions through these different levels of um, integration and disintegration. And, and just to come back to something you said at the outset, I believe this kind of self-othering um, self and not self distinction is also something that Francisco um, was starting to explore towards the end of his life when he was working with kind of the deeper iterations of the, you could say, the immunology principle um, and how it is that, you know, what we know as biological immunology may have, um, you know, kind of philosophical applications. But what I want to talk to you a little bit here is to me, what it seems like maybe this is one way to look at it, and I'll see, let me see if this lands with you, is one way I talk about. Ego is ego is exclusive identification with form. And one thing I'm hearing when you're speaking this way, Evan, is that in a certain sense, when we go from from the illusion of a fully constituted self um, here in the Freudian sense, you know, ego is first and foremost a body ego, and we fall asleep, where where you know ego is provisionally falling apart because this identification with with somatic physical form is falling apart. But the way I look at it now, especially in these kind of liminal dreaming states, which is a new term sometimes used for the hypnagogic space, it's almost as if um, uh, the sense of self is, is uh, being handed off from gross to subtle to very subtle form is, is ego disintegrates from its exclusive identification with outer form, then the baton, so to speak, is handed to to uh, you know, imagistic or so-called mental content until that eventually dissolves. Um, and one loses consciousness altogether in the, the, um, the non-experience of the, the dreamless state. And then, of course, the whole thing is kind of reconstituted as we come out from that and um, kind of reconfigure everything back together. But to me, would, would it be a fair thing to say, Evan, that the common denominator throughout this entire cascade is, in fact, um, either gross or subtle levels of identification with form? I mean, isn't that one way to talk about what you were just referring to? Yeah, no, I, I very much so. I think, um, I mean, you could use the word form. Uh, I tend to talk about it in terms of um, identifications with different kinds of contents, mental contents or contents of awareness. Okay. And those, I mean, but those contents have, you know, various kinds of forms. So they might be, um, you know, if we're thinking of, of, say, the hypnagogic state, 
they can be um, they can be visual images, they can be images in other sense modalities, they can be thought forms, um, and of course all of those kinds of contents and forms reappear in 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 the dream state. Uh, and then there's an interesting question about uh, sleep states that are that are dreamless, yeah. where you may have other kinds of subtle forms that in that don't really make up a dream in the sense of an immersive experience of of being in a in an immersive space that that has some sense of time and sense of place that would be the case for you know a, a sort of typical imagistic dream but that but there may be other you know subtler forms of of contents that are present and still um there's there's i mean it's an interesting question to ask you know what exactly the sense of I uh, or subjectivity uh, is like for those for those subtler forms, as you call them, or subtler contents. And so, mm -hmm. actually, part of what I talk about in *Waking Dreaming Being* is the, is the whole nature of uh, of dreamless sleep or or deep sleep, both from a physiological perspective and and from a, a experiential perspective. Because the standard sort of line in in neuroscience that we often hear is that well. Uh, Dreamless sleep is a, is a blackout state. It's a state of absence of consciousness. And if you actually look at what the neuroscience evidence is and what people mean when they say that, it's, it's, not, it's not so straightforward at all. It's, it's, uh, the state of dreamless sleep is not one thing. It, 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 there, there are many sort of sub-states and different, different kinds of forms or contents and qualities. And um, it's not one thing in terms of what the brain is doing. And if you wake people up from that state and you, you know, ask them to describe their experience, you, you get different kinds of reports depending on the questions you ask. So that's, that's a complicated realm in and of itself. Whereas you say uh, the, the, the forms are not, are not gross uh, in, the, in the sense of kind of coarse. They're, they're much subtler. Yeah, and, and really here, you know, it's interesting to me what comes to mind is um, – what Ramana Maharshi once was famously and cryptically said that really when I take it to heart, almost puts the, the Western um, view of reality completely up on its head where he said that which does not exist in deep dreamless sleep is not real. Um, and so, you know, the implication there is that, well, what, what really does exist, quote unquote, is one could argue formless awareness and and in that sense that is and as you mentioned in your book especially as a representative of the um, Hindu and Buddhist traditions I mean that state is referred to sometimes actually as the causal state I mean it is from that formlessness um, out of which everything then arises and then what happens in the West um, at least from my lens Evan is this kind of um, wake centricity this kind of ontological supremacy that we attribute to the waking state because that's fundamentally the state that we have uh, the most control over, at least allegedly. And that when that um, control falls apart as we fall asleep, we tend to dismiss these more subtle states simply because we're not lucid to them. And so the reason I'm saying this is that part of the chart of these nocturnal meditations is that if in fact we can ma maintain lucidity, paren, awareness as we drop into these deep states, we, we realize this kind of um, ultimate democracy of, of the mind, what the Buddhist tradition refers to as one taste or the great equanimity, kind of the equanimous nature of consciousness um, through all these different states. And that's what I find um, just fantastically interesting is, is to, to see how it is that we 
come online um, in the morning, literally go offline in the morning, or, or I should say at night. And then how each one of these um, experiences that we have uh, access to every single night can bring a greater sense of awareness and appreciation. And as you see in your book, this is what's so beautiful, um, gives us the opportunity to really be more fully human. I mean, on, a, on one level, if we only attribute reality to one third of what's available to us, uh, temporarily, not cat uh, categorically, not temporarily, in other words, the waking state, we're leaving out two thirds of reality. Um, and so I think this fullness that you're alluding to could, you know, could really be explored using the medium of these nocturnal practices and obviously the really subtle daytime meditations that, that support them. So um, I just wanted to toss that into the mix. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I'm very sympathetic with that. Um, of, of course, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, William James in uh, his, his uh, lectures on the varieties of religious experience in his chapter on mysticism, you know, he has this wonderful statement that the, the ordinary waking state is is just this very limited um, uh, kind of uh, slice of a much much wider spectrum of consciousness, and that it's the he says something like it's the filmiest of of yeah. screens that separates the waking state from all of these from all of these other states, and and all of these other states include the ones that we cycle through on a daily basis as we fall asleep and as we dream or as we, you know, practice or spontaneously have lucid dreams, um, as we, as we descend, you know, into, you know, the depths of sleep and then as we reemerge into, into awakening. So, uh, I think that that's, uh, that's exactly right. I think there's an interesting difference in perspective. I mean, as you say, um, there's a, there's a kind of, uh, orientation that we're culturally very familiar with that, that, that privileges the waking state, whereas when Ramana Maharshi speaks in that way that you quoted, you know, that's very much reflecting, uh, well, in his case, really, a, I would say probably a kind of uh, yoga Vedanta perspective where what happens in deep sleep is you return to a kind of ground state of consciousness that that is, as you say, causal in the sense that that's... Um, that's kind of the, uh, the, 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 the fundamental uh, level, like, like a zero energy state in physics. And then the waking state and the dreaming state are sort of excited states out of that, out of that low energy state, which is, which is what's present in deep sleep. And, and so a tradition like Vedanta and yoga, um, you could say uh, prioritize that, that state because it's, it's what you descend through in order to uh, experience, you could say the you know the fullness of of being or or Brahman, if we're talking about it in a in a uh, you know a, a Vedanta or yoga or yoga discourse. And of course, there are uh, you know some some versions of Buddhism are are not so sympathetic to that idea, but then other you know other developments of Buddhism are are much much closer to that. Uh, so that's an interesting cultural difference. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, in, in, um, also Matthew Walker. I don't know if you read his. Um... Um, quite compelling book, Why We Sleep. He goes so far as to say something quite, quite compelling, where he says it's it's uh, um, perhaps worth hypothesizing that the sleep state is really, even from a neurological point of view, the primary state. Um, and in, in a certain sense, you know, kind of resonant with exactly what we're talking about here, that the even the dreaming state, um, let alone what we call waking consciousness, 
are um, you know just expressions of this more foundational state. And one of the reasons he says that is because there's so much repair that has to take place when we spend so much time lost in the waking state. In other words, if you don't sleep, you die. And, and the less you sleep, um, the shorter you live. And so he makes this really quite courageous and compelling provisional argument that even from a, from a Western point of view, the sleep state may in fact be the foundational state. Um, you know, again, it certainly speaks to my understanding of these nocturnal practices. And as we know, dipping into the really deep end of the pool, this of course is one of the tenets of Bardo Yoga. That this is the, the kind of the primordial bed of mind that we return to in the Tibetan term, you know, the dream at the end of time is the way they talk about death. We plop back into this dream state in what's referred to as the luminous bardo of Dharmata. That's exactly what Richie was trying to um, continue to try to establish with this whole Tukton project. But I want to, let me turn to this. Um, one of the most compelling things, really helpful things in your book is um, this notion that you talk about of quantum phenomenology. I thought that was really elegant because what it suggests is kind of the increased refinement of the mind through intellectual study, through meditation practice, you know, kind of really um, uh, typified in your book altogether, which was so um, kind of, you know, elegant and articulate, that allows us to make these very subtle distinctions between um, levels of mind and experience that otherwise the gross mind just glosses over, I would argue, largely because of the speed, the, you know, the kind of the raw velocity of the mind. And one of the things I want you to talk to our audience about, Evan, is this really um, interesting notion in the philosophical arena, the difference between access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. I think that's an incredibly important distinction for people who explore these subtle um, uh, nocturnal states of mind that can give them some sense of inspiration that there actually may be more than uh, going on than meets the outbound eye. So talk to us a little bit about this wonderful distinction between access and phenomenal consciousness and how it plays out in this domain. Yeah, so this is a distinction that, uh, that cognitive scientists and, and philosophers make between two different senses of consciousness or, or two different senses of being conscious. So one one sense of of conscious is uh, that you are um, you might say felt awareness. So there is a, a feeling of awareness with some qualitative uh, character to it, and that's that's phenomenal consciousness. So phenomenal here means things things are appear or seem or have some kind of qualitative character. And then there's another sense of consciousness which is your ability to uh, access and mentally use or put to work various uh, contents of the mind, co cognitive access or access consciousness. And these two things are, uh, are, are interrelated in the sense that, you know, right now I'm, uh, I'm feeling certain things and I can talk about them and describe them to you and I can reflect on them and I can decide to shift my attention to one thing that I feel versus another thing that I feel. So those kind of cognitive activities have to do with what is accessible to me experientially. But there may be aspects of my felt awareness that are not immediately accessible to me and that uh, I would need to, in some sense, learn how to gain access to. And I think people who are familiar with meditation practice 
or or even with um, the idea of just gaining uh, increased awareness of your dreams would have an intuitive sense of the distinction I'm I'm making. So you know one of one of the things you know pe people often say oh well I don't dream very much or I don't remember my dreams and there are various kinds of practices or techniques you can give people to gain more uh, dream consciousness or dream awareness. And, and the idea is that, well, actually, dreaming is something that uh, maybe not for absolutely everybody, but for most people uh, happens in the night. But there's very little cognitive access to it. It's dreams are, are you know, rolling experiences that are often then forgotten. But if you wake yourself up periodically in the night and you write down your dreams and you and you practice, you can gain a kind of increased. Uh, your dreams can become more accessible to you experientially. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the idea basically between phenomenal consciousness and access consciousnesses. One is the is the is the the feeling of awareness, the feeling of being aware, and the other is the is the access that you have to that through uh, things like attention and memory and reflection. And one of the one of the very interesting questions, just to go back to our you know earlier mention of states of sleep that are deep or dreamless, is it's an interesting question, you know, if we just say consciousness is absent in dreamless sleep, as, as some neuroscientists sort of do, not, not all do this, because there's increased awareness that this is, a, this is a complicated issue, but, you know, when somebody, when somebody says, well, uh, dreamless sleep is a, is a blackout state, because when you wake people up they, and you ask them what's going through their minds, they don't report anything. Well, that statement they don't report anything that confounds two different senses of consciousness one is phenomenal awareness and the other is access consciousness because it may be that in the process of waking up they are losing access to something that actually was felt awareness that was happening sort of rolling in the minute or in the moment but then upon awakening and the transition from one state to another there's an inability to to access it yeah. and that right there then means that we have an interesting question from even from a scientific perspective which is well how might we disentangle these different senses of consciousness in order to get a more fine-grained view of what exactly might be uh accessible versus uh inaccessible but nonetheless uh felt in 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 the moment um or in a moment by moment in a moment by moment way yeah exactly and this is where we can launch into yet another i think a quite important distinction using this, this kind of quantum phenomenological approach that has to do and this is where i want to test some of my ideas against you here evan for a bit is the, the i think the critically important but very subtle difference between consciousness and awareness or consciousness and wisdom. And, the, and several things came to mind, and then I'll come back to the um, kind of etymologically why I think this is so foundational. And that is that when, when we fall into deep dreamless sleep, you know, dreamless is formless. And if we associate ego with exclusive identification with form, it reminds me of a, 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 um, something that Trump Ramachay once said, you know, ego cannot attend its own funeral. And that if ego is exclusive identification with form, um, you run into a formless dimension, then I would argue that there is, in fact, a legitimate claim that consciousness, as I define it, 
is in fact absent, which is, is one reason we go unconscious. And this is where I want to tie in what I believe is a really important distinction from, from the Yogacara tradition. You, you refer to the Yogacara teachings quite frequently in your book. But there's one thing there that I, I think is really worth talking about, and that is, in fact, the difference between jnana and vijnana. So jnana, J-N-A-N-A, is um, awareness, non-dualistic um, knowing in the deepest sense. The vijnana, you put the prefix in front of it, the V-I is, uh, um, means bifurcated, fractured, or separated. And so the implication is that um, consciousness is, in fact, a type of fractured wisdom. And so I would say that, uh, that we go unconscious because consciousness really only operates in this kind of dualistic way. And when we're experiencing, as you mentioned in your book, it's not like um, we're experiencing nothingness, we're experiencing no thingness. And from a thing-oriented perspective, i.e. the ego, that's no experience whatsoever, which is why I think um, the untrained mind blacks out. But for advanced yogic practitioners who work with non-dualistic meditations, who work with jnana, then in fact, when they drop into that state, I, I would argue this is one reason um, yoga nidra in the Tibetan uh, schema is called luminosity yoga, that mind actually lights up in the foundational light of the mind itself. Um, so I'm wondering how that speaks to you. I, I have a little bit more I want to take this to, but I'm wondering if that lands with you. Yeah, I, um, I mean, that's my, my immediate response to that is, is to be very, uh, um, resonant to it or sympathetic with it. I mean, so, so partly it depends on how we're using, you know, the words consciousness and, and awareness and, and so on. Um, in waking dreaming being, I use the word consciousness to mean these three things, awareness, identification with contents of awareness um, and uh, sorry, uh, awareness, changing contents of awareness and identification with contents of awareness. So consciousness means all those three. So then in a state like deep sleep, the question then for me is whether, or dreamless sleep is whether um, there's still a, a subtler process of identification that's yeah. happening. And if there is, then you could say there's a there's a, a kind of minimal sense of self or minimal selfhood. Um, if there isn't, and it's 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 completely selfless, then um, then we might say that it's it's awareness absent of changing forms and contents, and absent of identification, and and that's in effect what you're you're describing when you talk about, you know, Tibetan ideas of, of luminosity or, or, or pure jhana, pure, pure awareness. And I think there it's the discussion. So, so, I mean, the, the easy, easy thing to say is I'm, you know, I'm very resonant to those subtleties and to those distinctions. I think the, the complicated issue is um, that those, those frameworks coming out of contemplative traditions, um, I, would, I would want to be cautious about reading them as straightforwardly phenomenological mm -hmm. in the sense that they are direct, as it were, printouts or readouts of, um, 
of somebody's experience because those frameworks are also you could say normative uh i would say religious ones that are that are meant to um orient us in a in a on a transformative path and they are in, in, in that sense, they are they are prescriptive concepts, not simply descriptive ones. So I, I think we need to we sort of need to tread cautiously around those ideas and, and not just immediately flatten them into, oh, so this is a kind of descriptive experiential concept. This is actually related to things I talk about in my new book, Why I'm Not a Buddhist. Um, right. But we don't need to go there yet. But but um, so so all of that is is kind of how I would how I would respond to the to the things that you're um, that you're saying. I mean, the other the other thing I would say is that although I myself am very um, you know I'm I'm very as I say resonant or sympathetic to those ideas as they're articulated, say in Yogacara or in different terminology in in Advaita Vedanta. There are other you know contemplative. Uh, philosophical systems and perspectives, say within Buddhism, that reject those ideas. Um, you know, for for example, uh, uh, Theravada Buddhism doesn't really talk about that idea of a kind of um, pure, non-dual, non-discriminative luminosity of awareness. I mean, some people read the the idea of bhavanga, the the sort of life continuum consciousness that way, but usually the, the, the standard view within, say, Theravada is that consciousness always has a subject-object structure, and the idea of a kind of pure awareness without a subject-object structure isn't really something we see in that way in that tradition. So I'm not taking sides here. I'm just saying that, you know, there, there, there's a lot of different perspectives on, on these questions. Yeah, and that's also, I think, where you where you probably point out in your book where His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that when we have these kinds of, and this obviously is a very interesting almost political issue within the tradition itself that when we have these types of discussions um obviously he would say this because he is a Vajrayanist that we kind of defer to the highest stage but that becomes well what's the highest stage then and, and he says there you know it would be descriptions from the Vajrayana point of view so that enters into a completely different hornet's nest so are, are you saying that Evan I just want to make sure I understand so when you're talking about the difference between um kind of uh, descriptive versus prescriptive are you, is this a polite way of saying that um, these could be hypothetical states or say me a little, little bit more about um, that distinction that, you know, yeah. because when I look at it, and this again, it comes back to this, this kind of quantum phenomenology thing is in the deep dreamless state, it's not, it's not just one state. There are, there are degrees of increasing subtlety. So for instance, as you know, from the Yogacara perspective, when you drop into Deep dreamless sleep. You could you could either be in residing in the alia, the jnana, the eight consciousness, um, or if you are a complete yogic master, then you actually subsend that and rest in what some scholars provisionally refer to as the ninth consciousness, which of course would be um, correlative with like clear light mind or the type of pure, utterly formless awareness that we're talking about. But um, come back to this issue of, of descriptive versus prescriptive. And whether you are actually saying that some of these states are um, hypothetical, are you going so far as to say that, or are you just trying to uh, kind of throw out a word of caution? I would say I'm throwing out a word of caution. So, so then the question is, well, why am I throwing out the word of caution? And, and so let me try to describe the, 
sort of complicated terrain as I see it. So on the one hand, we have, um, let's call it a scriptural tradition, where we have, um, we have, we have scriptures of many different kinds. We, we have um, sutras, religious texts, um, we have philosophical texts, where we have taxonomies and systems and, and philosophical, psychological distinctions and arguments made. And then we have, I suppose we could call them practice texts, which are meant to give inst instructions on, on how to engage in one or another kind of con contemplative practice. And all of these texts, uh, they require interpretation and they, and they uh, are, are functioning in, in different contexts. So even a practice text is one that sort of sets things up in a certain, you might say rhetorical way, um, mm -hmm. where, where previous scriptures have to be acknowledged and a particular perspective is being put forward. And these, these texts don't, they're, they're not, you know, in, in, in they're not like straightforward how-to manuals in the way that we Westerners think of how-to manuals, you know, like meditation for dummies or something like that, right? They're 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 very they're very complicated literary creations in a way. So we don't want to go into them and sort of literalistically think, oh, this is a straightforward description of an experience, because what's being described is being presented in a in a very rich philosophical, scriptural, uh, you might even say liturgical way, yep. and um, they're being presented from a perspective, as you just said, in the case of the Dalai Lama, where some systems are seen as higher than others. Yep. And, and no individual contemplative teacher traditionally will say, oh, I've experienced X and Y, because that's like that's that's pride. That's arrogance. That's bad form. You're you're not supposed to do that. So, all of it is to say that that we have to tread cautiously in how we treat the materials. Now, I'm not I'm not trying to say that. I'm I'm not asserting. Oh, it's all hypothetical. I'm simply saying we need to be very cautious. And you know, in the meeting where you and I met, the Tukdan meeting, this you know this really came came out as as a as a kind of issue of cross-cultural negotiation where um, the idea of a, of a, a consciousness or a, let's say a, a state of awareness at the moment of death or, or after death, depending on what death means, um, either biologically or, or you might say philosophically or religiously, it's not like we can just sort of literally and straightforwardly interpret what that is. We have to you know, really triangulate between anthropology and practice and philosophy and science to 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 bring this complicated thing into view. So that that's really what I'm saying. Is is it's yeah, I couldn't agree more. And thank you so much for bringing it up because I, I think that's one of your um, great contributions, my friend. If I might say, is your ability with your um, capacities to really, uh, you know, pardon the French, um, bring out the bullshit meter and, and just take really, let's take a really closer, more honest look at the confirmation biases that we have, all these kind of subliminal predispositions we have that, that we unwittingly just continue to pull over our own eyes. And so, you know, even in, in the 
in the tantric languages, they talk a lot about self-secrets or twilight languages, where it's exactly what you're talking about, where some of these texts, especially the tantras, are intentionally cryptic. They're, they have to be decoded, um, and it's the, it's the kind of the purview of the meditation master to provide you with those access codes. So you can then actually un unpack these things for yourself. And as you point out in your book, I thought one of the really seminal contributions in the Bardo chapter is exactly what you're talking about here, is a very important distinction that you make um, between these phenomenological, alleged phenomenological experiences, especially when we die, and what you refer to as ritualized phenomenology. I thought that was just absolutely brilliant that, you know, we have this tendency, it's a little bit like, um, I mean, my language for this is the the near enemy of articulation is reification, that it's super easy to take the grasping tendencies of, of the egoic mind and to latch onto these descriptions as immutable, um, kind of, uh, uh, really just portraits of what's actually taking place. And so bringing it out of that and, it, and, re and situating it, recontextualizing it in this larger framework that you're talking about, I just think is a very honest way to look at virtually anything, and it brings to me about a, a quality of humility, a quality of open-mindedness, um, kind of integral approaches to thinking, systemic um, or holistic ways where that everything is context-dependent. I mean, the, the, the postmodernists have definitely contributed to that. Everything is situated, and if we can understand those those um, situational frameworks and those contexts, then we can bring an honest lens to what's really happening. And so, I really applaud you for your willingness to go after, in the best sense, both the East and the West in this regard, because um, I was having a, a fruitful conversation with Robert Thurman not too long ago, and, and we were both talking about how blind both the East and the West can be to their various forms of reductionism. You know, like in the West, there's a tendency to reduce everything to frisky dirt, you know, to, to materialistic um, bases. And in the East, there's a, a unwitting tendency to reduce everything into karma, um, or, or for that matter, into mind. You know, the, the mind-only schools, I think, fall um, prey to this type of trap. And so I, I really uh, i am so grateful for your willingness. It takes a lot of guts to do this because you're, you're setting yourself self up as a target from both arena, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I appreciate your saying that. And, and um... You know that that's that's very encouraging to hear. But I, I, I you know, I definitely, uh, I mean, sometimes I, I, it is it is it does set you up from from criticisms from multiple sides, which I mean, which is which is fine. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm a philosopher, and like we sort of thrive on criticism, so that's okay. Um, but but it's it's a kind of plea. It's a plea for complexity. It's a plea for you know treading cautiously and and a reminder that you know we're in a we're in a culturally very unique and and I would say both precarious and precious situation in the sense that you know we have unprecedented access to um, different uh, cultural traditions and different uh, different knowledge systems you might say um, contemplative philosophical scientific and we don't just want to sort of throw everything into into one you know, mishmash. We really want to, you know, do do justice to to treating all of these elements carefully and, you know, with the integrity that that they deserve. And you know, that's that's very much what I what I try to do in Waking Dreaming Being is to is to 
as as you know my mentor Francisco Varela said is to stay with the open question mm-hmm. and 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 kind of keep that openness yeah and so and so with that in mind very practically so with, with the listeners in our community um, we have a, I think a pretty eclectic group but we have a lot of practitioners spiritual meditators and the like um, what how would you advise you know I, I guess it's a way to ask you to summarize what you're saying because I, I personally think this is really important I mean I see um, I mean, here's a very practical case in point. I, I teach in various locations. You know, I've been doing so for, for many, many years. And, and I find uh, people come up to me 10, 15, sometimes even 20 years after I first met them at some event, um, kind of struggling, wrestling with precisely the same issue they had 20 years ago. And, and they go see their meditation instructor. I mean, this is just kind of a, a archetype. The meditation instructor says, oh, you need to meditate harder or you're doing the wrong type of meditation or whatever. And, and to me, I, I think that's a really common problem um, mm-hmm. in the spiritual community. And people can get really stuck and waste a lot of years kind of barking up the wrong tree. So as an advisor um, to help bring out blind spots, what would you advise to spiritual practitioners altogether to, to maintain this kind of larger aperture of awareness and a greater sense of humility and openness for other systems to um, benefit them and, and the like? Mm, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not sure there's any kind of one prescription there because, you know, people are, people are so different and circumstances are, are unique. Um, and it's not a kind of one size fits all thing. Um, I mean, I, I can say that that at least based on my own experience, you know, having grown up, you know, as a kid in a commune in the 1970s and being exposed to different, you know, spiritual teachers and and kind of having to sort of find my way through a lot of that, um, I I think that uh, there's a way in which in our culture meditation gets. Um, you might say privatized or individualized and, and people uh, kind of almost treat it. I mean, this is an extreme, but it gets treated like another self-help commodity. And I really think, you know, connectedness socially is, is very important. I think um, the idea that it, that, you know, spiritual practice should just be about what happens to you when you're meditating on the cushion and the different states that you might experience or the different qualities of mind you might experience. I think that in and of itself is a kind of trap. I think, um, Mm -hmm. I think it's, 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 it's really important to remember that, you know, we're human beings, we're in communities. Um, it's, it's about helping each other and, and interconnectedness and, and compassion and I think unless and, and that, that larger kind of social, uh, you could say ethical framework is in place, that um, the meditation just becomes like, you know, another privatized thing. And, um, you know, it can, it can take you down all sorts of roads that I think in the larger scheme of things are, are, are not really so, uh, so beneficial. Yeah, I'm reminded there of what Almas, A.H. Almas said so famously, at least famously to me, when he said, you know, when when uh, many spiritual practitioners set out on their path, they're unwittingly setting out for heaven, that it's uh, an unconscious mm-hmm. tendency. And so I, this is an incredibly important point. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh sometimes 
is paying on this is that you know the next Buddha is the Sangha, and you know in the Buddhist community, as you know, we take uh, refuge in three jewels: the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And most people, I'm sure you know this one, Evan. Most people are pretty okay with taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma, but they are not okay in taking refuge with the Sangha. And I would argue, just as you're putting forth, that may be the most important one to take refuge in because they're the ones, I mean, they're going to call you on your stuff. They're going to reflect your your neurosis and your wisdom to you. And they're going to pull you out of your comfort zone because otherwise, otherwise these practices are just ways to kind of plop into very delicious kind of uh, psycho-spiritual bubble baths where where we may just basically be looking for a greater sense of comfort and um, instead of reality, which is, I think, fundamentally what these deeper practices invite. So have you noticed in your own experience, have, have you been challenged by um, the community and, and find yourself willing to accept that challenge by stepping off the cushion, so to speak, and into the community? Well, I've... Um... I mean, I've existed or existed. I've, I've, I've sort of worked and lived in, in different kinds of communities, and and they've all been really important to me. Um, uh, you know, so one community is you know the academic community where, um, you know, I do my research and where teaching is really important to me. I, I find teaching extremely important because um, you know students reflect back to you all sorts of things. And that's a kind of constantly evolving thing that's that's very important to me. I, I grew up in like, you know, an alternative community and and that experience, you know, shaped me in a lot of ways from a very young age. I've worked with different kinds of alternative institutions like the Mind and Life Institute, for example. Um, and so I, I find having those like diversity of contexts really important because it means I'm not sort of just sliding into one group and only talking to to one group and 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 this is just in terms of my own personal experience of what of what's been important to me i would say in terms of the in terms of like specifically having to do with meditation um i mean i i don't self-identify as a buddhist so i'm not you know i don't i don't belong to a buddhist sangha although i've worked with different buddhist groups on different buddhist sanghas uh over the years um but I do have a, you know, I do have a personal meditation practice that's uh, evolved through through different kinds of um, uh, practices that I've that I've learned or 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 groups that I've participated within. Some some Buddhist, some uh, some yoga, uh, Vedanta, different different kinds of um, of uh, practices from those from those different groups. I also just this is just now me speaking purely personally about my own experience. Isn't meant to be prescriptive for anybody, but I also for for many years have practiced uh, Tai Chi and standing meditation coming from from Taoist traditions of standing practice. And I personally just in terms of like what works for me find that type of practice very usefully balanced with sitting practice. So. Um, there's a kind of standard uh, Taoist or Chinese statement, which is to bring the 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 calmness and quietude and stillness of sitting practice into movement practice, and to bring the energy of movement practice into sitting practice. And and standing meditation is a form where both of those kind of intersect. And I find that a very rich and rewarding practice. Um, so it's a it's a kind of waking state practice 
it's it's standing so it's more energetically demanding than than sitting it's a kind of open awareness rather than, than a focused concentration and so it's it's in a way more engaged you could say with um with the world as you know as presented in the alert waking state and i i find that really very important just for just for kind of balance yeah. um so that's that's not so much about community that's just more about uh, although I, I do work with um, you know other practitioners and and, and a teacher uh, for for that practice, um, but that's more just about styles of practice and what I've personally found beneficial. I have to echo you there, Evan, because it's very much the, the you know the kind of the charter underneath even the nocturnal practices is the narrative of um, the kind of the colloquial expression of yoga as stretching, you know, stretching awareness to all states, and and again, it's a very easy kind of default. If you only associate meditation with sitting, where does your meditative mind go when you get off the cushion and enter your life? You, you leave that awareness back on the cushion. And so to me, these, these so-called nocturnal practices, as I refer to them, and also their, their sister or diurnal correlate, you know, the practice of the practice of illusory form, is very in resonance with what you're saying, where to me, it's like stretch your awareness to all states so that um, your entire life becomes your practice. You know, in a real way, to me, sitting meditation is remedial work. It's it's it's, it's practicing in an incubator. But, uh, you know, if you want to grow up and out, you, you can't really live your life in an incubator. And so standing practice, you know, the other practices sanctioned, so to speak, in the Satipatthana Sutra, walking meditation, lying down meditation, fundamentally um learning how to extend the qualities into all states. And and again, this is kind of encapsulated in these nocturnal practices themselves. It's not just what you do during the day. I mean, wherever you go, there you are, right? I mean, you have your mind under any circumstance. What, why can you not, in fact, bring the qualities of your meditative mind to absolutely everything that you do? And so with that said, Evan, do you, do you engage, you, you write so eloquently about lucid dreaming and dream yoga. Is that part of your curricula? I mean, do you still engage in those types of adventures? Yeah, so I would say right now, um, I've been less uh, specifically focused on that. So when I was writing Waking Dreaming, I was I was really working with that a lot um, in, a, in, a, in a very, I suppose you could say disciplined daily or nightly or nightly way. And um, I did some I did some meditation retreats around that. I did a I did a, a, a dream yoga retreat with Alan Wallace um, right. when I was working on that on that on that book. Um, and now I would say uh, I haven't been I haven't been specifically as focused on that. I mean, I would say in terms of just my own like dream life that I spontaneously have lucid dream experiences um, reasonably frequently, I guess. Um, and they're always they're always interesting and important moments that I that I that I find valuable. But I haven't been working as in as dis disciplined a way, I guess you could say, with that in 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 recent years. But when I was writing Waking Dreamy Being, I was I was very much uh, I was very much concerned with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I, I wanted to um, let's see what I, I wanted to talk to you about. Oh yeah. Um, just switching gears a little bit, I want to come back to, to some of the kind of personal things before we close, but one of my favorite questions these days, I, I, I get these kind of pet peeve questions, and I'm curious how, how you would um, play with this one. In a certain way, one kind of summary statement of Eastern versus Western approaches to, to mind and reality, 
and, and the question, therefore, would be from your understanding and experience, Evan, would you say that the universe exists within the mind or the mind exists within the universe? Is there a kind of a primacy that you would attribute to one over the other? Or do they both have valid um, you know, trajectories in your own experience? <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge question. Um, I mean, huge just because uh, there are so many different philosophical grapplings with that question, you know, in, in Asian philosophical traditions where, where within Asia they say different things, you know, India, China, different, different schools within those cultures have different takes on this. And of course, in Western philosophy, it's a, you know, longstanding um, topic of debate. Um, so, you know, I would, I would say that my own, um, approach to that question, um, is, is one that looks at, let's say interdependency. So for me, um, whenever we're talking about, uh, anything in the world or the world as a whole, the cosmos, um, we're doing that in a way that presupposes the, the givenness of that world to awareness. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to talk about it. We wouldn't be able to frame it as a question. Yep. And um, at the same time, that it doesn't follow from that that the world or the cosmos is somehow inside consciousness. Consciousness is not a container. It's not a box. In, in that sense, that's like the wrong sort of spatial metaphor or geometry. So mm -hmm. I see it as a kind of circularity or interdependence where you emphasize one and you sort of explore it, whether it's, let's say, mind or world. And in doing that, you're going to be led to the other one in a kind of like Mobius strip loop. And you can't really uh, reduce one to the other that you're 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 in this you're in this loop of each one folding back on the other. I think that's really beautiful because again, this is a subtle form of reductionism. I mean, I, I, I see this quite a bit in the non-dual communities, whether it's um, non-dual Shaiva Tantra, I mean, you name it, non-dual um, non trajectories altogether. They tend to um, profess that, you know, it is in fact the universe that exists within the mind. But then, ugh, boy, you know, you got a horn's nest even there. What, then you start to obviously have to pick apart what, what does this thing called mind even mean in that regard. And so I, I love that kind of um, flexibility that it really, um, I wouldn't say it's context dependent, but that there's room for both of those. They, they both have their, their own valid stance depending on um, you know, the way one actually suppose it likes to look at the world. But so just to make sure I you know, walk away with this one with clarity, um, so in contradistinction to the non-dual assertions, you, you would not um, kind of profess the superiority of the, the, the view that the universe exists within mind, or actually what I would say, universe exists as a display of the mind. I mean, is that? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be comfortable with putting it that way. Um, I think that that takes um, a complicated, uh, interdependent, uh, not or or Mobius strip, if you want to use that image, and tries to cut it in a way that um, flattens it out and puts one thing um, as as primary uh, in a way that I think generates all sorts of all sorts of philosophical problems, but also uh, 
um, I'm not sure what the right word is, but 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 is a it's a um, it it can lead to a kind of arrogance, a kind of uh, valorizing of of the mind over over the world in a way that uh, that disengages us from 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 the world, and and so that's something I'm I'm very much not sympathetic to. Yeah, and so where does this leave you? You know, we're talking about really about the inactive you in, in one term that we've been circumambulating here that we haven't really addressed is in fact this axiomatic, this this kind of given view, which sometimes is referred to as the myth of the given of of a, of a pre-existing world that we kind of plop into and that, um, you know, as you know, is sometimes referred to as correspondence theory or the, or the representationalism. Where does that fit into your both your academic and your personal um, experience and views? Yeah, so so the inactive idea is very much this idea of the kind of Mobius strip of the mind in the world that I was that I was just talking because what it what it emphasizes is how um, processes, embodied processes, bring forth what we experience as mind and what we experience as as world. And there's a there's actually a statement uh, from a very important influential American philosopher that I that I really love, Hilary Putnam, and and he has this marvelous statement where he says the mind and the world jointly make up the mind and the world, mm-hmm. and that's very much the philosophical uh, core of the inactive perspective, yeah. and so what that means more, you might say, pragmatically or experientially, is that the the environment or the world that we experience in our everyday dealing with things, it's not inside our minds in any kind of subjectivist sense, but it's also something that's not independent of us because its contours, its landscape, its shape has to do with the way we are in the world, the kinds of bodies we have, the kinds of um, cognitive processes we have, and there's no way to pry those two things apart. Yeah, I think that's spot on. You know, and again, the the beauty of these things for me is, is from the kind of angles that you've been kind of bringing to everything you're saying is how can we take this information that could be otherwise left in the world of philosophy? Because you know, there there is shadow element, of course, to the to the mere philosopher as one who just gets lost in their own kind of internal um, you know, you disconnected from, from reality. And what I so appreciate about what you're doing um, in your work and also in your life is your ability to take these um, teachings, this information, and um, kind of bolt it into your life. And so with that in mind, I mean, how you, you've been sort of circumambulating this, but how has your your work transformed you? Like, you know, there's this term that I, I've heard some scholars um, talk about these days hermeneutical mysticism you know that when you're actually like translators for instance when they're engaged in deep translations of texts there's a kind of spiritual transformation that takes place within that very enterprise and, and i love this kind of um broader look at spiritual practice because again it challenges the the supremacy of pure meditation as we know it and so how has has your experience with your research in all these different fields um, changed you? I mean, how are you a, a, a different, better person from your own um, exploration of these things from an academic perspective? Mm. 
Well, uh, I'd be, I mean, I'd be the last person in a way to be able to comment on that because my, my perspective on my own evolution is probably uh, pretty uh, uh, <laughs> caught up in my own evolution, whatever that is. But um, I mean, I would, I would say maybe just autobiographically, I suppose that I was always, even going back to when I was a kid, I was always drawn to philosophy or philosophical modes of thinking um, because it, it seemed to me to be a kind of, you could call it spiritual or, or transformative path. And so I think of, um, I think of meditation, for example, as not just, you know, for example, sitting on a cushion and attending to your breath or whatever, or whatever practice you might be doing in that context. But I, I think of, I think of philosophizing as a, as a kind of meditative or contemplative discipline, and I think of um, I, I try to bring that to life in the way that I teach philosophy. Um, I, I try to convey that in not all of my writing. I, mean, I, I do writing that is, you know, more sort of narrowly academic. But, you know, in like in Waking Dreamy Being, for example, I, I tried to write in a way that that brought that out. And so f I, I would say that trying to uh, enliven philosophy as a contemplative path and, and show, show others how it can be a contemplative path is, is very important uh, to my sense of, you know, what, what it is that I do in my life. And it's, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a personally transformative thing because it's a, it's a, it's, it's a journey. So, I mean, just to give one concrete example, like when I, when I went, into writing Waking Dreaming Being, I had, I had certain ideas in advance, um, especially concerning um, some of the issues around death and the Western near-death experience literature. Um, I, had, I had ideas about really how to interpret that, that I, that I then, through the process of exploring the literature and reading it and, and, and doing the, the Being with Dying medical training, uh, contemplative end-of-life care training program at the Upaya Institute and Zen Center that really, I think, opened me up and changed my thinking about just how to deepen this sensibility of staying with the open question. I realized ways in which I went in thinking things that then I actually had to step back and, and just try to rewrite and re-understand in a way that made them much more open. Um, so that's, that's part of an answer to your question, I suppose. Um, yeah. yeah. That's really beautiful. And, and, and you know, what it kind of brought up in my own experience has been the um, a profound revolution and change in, in my um, appreciation for psychedelic agents. And maybe we can turn to that for just a second because you know, as incredibly comprehensive as your work, especially in Waking Dreaming Being has been, the one thing that, that is not mentioned, and as you know, is now gaining some very interesting traffic with Michael Pollan's recent book. And then I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with James Kingsland's book. He wrote out quite a fine tome this, this summer. Um, how, where do you land on, on this somewhat controversial topic as using these agents? And again, as a neurophenomenologist, I would suspect that this has some credibility for you, but it's a, obviously a very culturally sensitive topic, and there are a lot of hornets waiting in this particular nest. But where do you land in in the kind of the reinvigoration 
uh, the exploration of, of minds through um, these entheogens and, and uh, psychedelics. Yeah, uh, that's 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 a great question. I um, I didn't write about it. Um, basically because I wanted to write about things that I had personal experience of. Um, so, you know, all of the things about sleeping and dreaming um, and lucid dreaming, I, I really tried to kind of illustrate autobiographically in terms of my own experience and how my own experience sort of fed certain philosophical questions and how the philosophical questions then kind of fed back into my experience because I wanted, I wanted the book to have that, that kind of narrative. And in the case of psychedelics, um, I don't have that. I don't have that experience, and I mean the reason I don't. I've been I've been very hesitant or cautious about uh, personally going down that path. Is that I I I think of myself or or my experience has has basically been one where I'm extremely uh, sensitive, I guess you could say, or maybe even biosensitive. So. Um, you know, in, 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 in having, you know, uh, as a, as a undergraduate student and then sometimes as an, as an adult, but not, not really very much just, you know, like smoking, um, smoking marijuana. Like I can, I can have intense hallucinatory experiences just from that. And so I was really hesitant about mm. doing anything, um, stronger, uh, be, be, because I basically just didn't think that, uh, it was, it was going to be too overwhelming. I think I was always worried that, that, that for me, it was going to be too overwhelming and I didn't really want to go down that particular path of, of exploration. So I was like, you know, with my friends as an undergraduate, I was always the one when everybody else was tripping, who was like the one person who wasn't tripping, who would make sure people wouldn't like jump off roofs and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah. Exactly. So that was, that's that's just like experientially. I, I mean, as for the the topic and the research, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's extremely interesting. I think it's extremely important. Uh, I think it's very um, uh, what's the word? It's 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 very fraught in our culture um, because of the whole way that we you know we look at mind altering substances and and just the complete you know, lack of consistency and how we, how we think about those things, the way we medicalize some things, criminalize other things. I mean, it's, it's just so completely uh, irrational um, that then uh, entering into that and then trying to do responsible work and, and then in a consumerist culture that, you know, valorizes these things um, for, you know, individual gratification purposes. So, so it, it, it's, it's a it's a complicated and messy situation, but I think the um, I think the research on it is uh, is important and should be done and and right. is 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 very valuable. Well, I mean, if it's true, for instance, I'm, I'm sure you've heard these stories, Evans, where um, Evan, where someone like you know Ramdas allegedly gave his swami something like you know 25 hits of, of right. sunshine and like nothing happens. Well, you know, if that is in fact true. That's a very interesting thing to say because, again, neurophenomenologically, what is going on? I mean, it would be so interesting to put someone like that in an fMRI and see if, in fact, there's some fundamental alteration in brain structure that would somehow really account for this this really outrageous kind of proclamation. So, does that hold water to for you credibility? When, when, and again, this is not the only account. I've heard others where where 
um, so-called spiritual masters are given these agents and, and fundamentally nothing happens. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, there, I, I'm pretty. Uh, I want to like put on my cautious, skeptical scientist hat with reports like that. I don't, you know, not to dismiss them, but just to say that they're, they're anecdotal reports, and for any given individual, why something has an effect and why it doesn't is going to involve such a complex host of factors that just attributing it to their, you know, being. Uh, meditators or spiritual teachers, what, whatever exactly that means. I think that's, I think that's pretty simplistic. Um, and, and then these stories, you know, they take on like mythic proportions. Yeah. Right. Um, so I'm pretty cautious and skeptical, uh, about that. There could be, there could be lots of reasons why something does or doesn't have an effect and why something is experienced, you know, as mind altering in a mystical sense, why it's experienced, in some other way has a lot to do with contextual shaping factors. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's things to investigate there for sure, but I don't, I don't put too much stock in those anecdotes. I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have another second to turn to one last topic before? Yeah. Happy to do that. Yeah. Well, this is so rich to me. I can, I, I, I feel like that kid in candy store. I mean, I could do this all day. <laughs> the, the one thing that, that, that you write about with, you know, Elegance, and, and I have to say, as another compliment, my friend, your 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 absolute sensitivity when you're dealing with some of these critiques is is just lovely. I mean, even when His Holiness the Dalai Lama says certain things, the, the way the way you come at that um, with a gentle, incisive look is is applaudable, and and also in this regard, the way you talk about uh, out of body experiences, OBEs, and the like. I, I want to turn to this for just a second because. In, when I teach my programs, um, in fact, down in Arizona, when I did this thing with the Laberge just this past week, is virtually every single time I do one of these, people come up to me and start riffing away about their OBEs. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I I loved your account of that. I've read Susan um, Blackburn's account. I think it's very cogent account as well, but that it's not so much, and this is what I want to plant with you, not so much an out-of-body as an altered embodied experience. And again, it's not in any way, and this is where it gets so sensitive because, yeah, you know, you don't want to criticize these people, but uh, um, it's very easy to get lost in in, in blind spots. You know, I mean, for instance, uh, kind of a wild case is, I'm sure you've heard the studies of people in uh, who experience sleep paralysis. Some Harvard researchers have shown that now they're suggesting that a lot of kind of alien abduction stories are taking place within that um, kind of strange Bartle-like experience. And so, Talk to us a little bit about the cautions of out-of-body experiences, um, whether that has um, a, a real place in the world or whether that's just a subtle form of self-deception and delusion. So um, a little bit about altered embodiment versus out-of-body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I would say that out-of-body experiences definitely have a place in the world in the sense that people have these experiences. Um, they're not made up. Um, I've had them myself. Um, and, and one of the things that set me off on part of the path of waking dreaming being was having had these experiences going back to when I was a little kid and being given a certain metaphysical framework for understanding them, which was very much the kind of theosophical astral travel uh, idea that there's a there's a kind of subtle body that separates from the physical body and journeys and, and into other um, 
dimensions or realms and acquires knowledge there and then returns to the physical body. You know, when I had my first uh, out-of-body experience when I was like nine or 10 years old and I told my dad about it, um, that was how he explained it to me. He kind of explained the theosophical worldview in which um, in which out-of-body experiences are, are seen that way. And that was very meaningful for me because it gave me a way to understand an experience I had. It gave me a kind of framework of, of meaning for it. But we need, to, we need to distinguish two things here. So one is the experiences are real as experiences. People have them. They're, they're, they're very vivid. Um, they're very compelling. Um, and then how we interpret them and how we understand what they are. And I, as a result of my own research and thinking in philosophy and in science and, you know, uh, further experiences um, involving lucid dreaming and out-of-body experiences, came to think of out-of-body experiences very differently from that original theosophical framework that I had been given to understand them in. And that's... The, the, the way that I came to experience them is, is what you're referring to by this idea of altered embodiment. So we call them out-of-body experiences because they're experiences in which you see, you have the experience of seeing your body from an outside perspective as if, say, for example, you're floating above it. Um, maybe it happens in a sleep state when you're um, in your bed at night and you find your, your visual perspective is up by the ceiling and you're looking down on your bed and it's, you know, it's very vivid and real. So it doesn't really seem exactly like a dream. Um, so I describe that as an experience of altered embodiment for a number of reasons. One, when you are in this altered perspective, um, there are still bodily experientially speaking, bodily characteristics that are present. So there can be sensations of floating. You have the sensation of being oriented in a, in a vestibular space with up-down orientations, left-right orientations, forward-back. All of those kinds of orient, spatial orientations come from, um, from having a sense of embodiment and um, have to do with how the brain maps space in relationship to the body. And we know from neuroscience that we can induce experiences or aspects of experiences that have these characteristics. Um, We can also induce them through virtual reality technologies in part. So the idea that we should somehow take the experience as literally meaning that there is a non-physical or subtle physical body that separates from the body. It's very understandable why we would look at it that way because it sort of feels like that. And in a culture that doesn't have access to some of the knowledge that we now have through neuroscience and virtual reality technology, that's a, that's a natural interpretation to have. But if you really uh, investigate these experiences, um, that interpretation doesn't stand up to me as the, as the most uh, credible or, uh, or the most explanatory. And that's really what I explore in the out-of-body experience chapter in, in Waking Dreamy Being. So I come to describe them as altered embodiment. That is, there's still a sense of being embodied, but there's a separation between two things that are usually together in the normal waking state, for example. That is, your experience of your body as... Um, a subject and your experience of your body as object. Those two things usually are fused, as it were. And in an out-of-body experience, they can come apart so that your subjectivity or your sense of 
attentional selfhood is as you know up at the ceiling as it were and then you see your body as an object down in the bed below and your brain is your your brain as a cognitive system is creating that based on um, a way an altered way that it's putting together different kinds of sensory signals visual and vestibular and proprioceptive and and so on um, so that's that's another I guess case where um, in terms of my own, you know, my own journey through these materials, where I started out with a certain kind of worldview, um, and then through further experience and learning and thinking, I came to look at it. Very, very, at, I came to look at it very differently. Yeah, that's really terrific. And, and I think there's ways. I mean, when I when I tell people is um, there's ways to test this. It's interesting. Some people just don't even want to hear that because they're. Yeah is so treasured they don't want to be challenged but I, I and again I like to hear what what you have to say about this this is not that terribly difficult to challenge and, and to test and say okay hey um, let try doing this try try um, for instance spinning um, if you're in in uh, an out-of-body experience and you spin and you stop you'll be in the same place but if you're in a lucid or hyper lucid dream and you spin the vast majority of times when you stop, you're going to be in a different place. Um, mm -hmm. and so things like reading, you know, it's, it's not so easy to read when you're in the dream. And so there, there are certain things you could do. I, do you have any other tests for those intrepid explorers who, who may really want to challenge their experience and say, geez, I wonder if, if my OBEs are in fact just a kind of hyper lucid dream. Is there anything else they can do to centrifuge that out? I think one thing that's interesting to play with is um, is movement. So um, if you have the sense that you can uh, you can move from one place to another, um, try to engage that and then see what the movement is like. Is it smooth, continuous, or are you actually jumping and scene shifting, yeah. where you go discreetly from one thing to the next? And I would submit that it's a lot of discrete jumping and scene shifting it's not a smooth movement through a continuously present space and i would say that's because you have as a you know your brain as uh, as a cognitive system has a spatial map that it's relying on and that it's discreetly as it were activating to give you the sense of movement but it's not as if you're moving through a continuous uh smooth stable environment yeah, yeah, that's great. I hadn't thought of that one. That's a terrific one. So, my friend, as, as we start to come to a close, because I, I, you're so generous with your time, um, we have to talk just ever so briefly about your upcoming book. Um, I, I cannot wait to give this thing a read. And um, as a preview, and, and you know, if you're up for it a year or so from now when this thing comes out, I would love to have you back on and chat a little bit about that. But even the title itself, Beautiful Why I... Um, I am not a Buddhist. And, and, you know, the first thing that came to my mind, of course, was, well, gosh, you know, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. So um, talk to us a little bit about what sparked you to write this, um, this idea of cosmopolitanism that I know is central to the book and what you uh, what your aspirations are for, um, again, this kind of, I think, really healthy, constructive criticism of the infatuation and the blind spots that occur with this this transplantation and um, the translation of Buddhism into the West, because as you know, um, just as importantly as the literal translation of the word 
is the cultural translation. And there's a whole lot that I think is lost in translation when it comes to culture. Um, and so I am so excited about this forthcoming book. Give us a preview of what this is about, why you wrote it, and what your aspirations are around this um, next home. Yeah, so the book is basically um, a criticism of what I call, or the critical part of the book is a criticism of what I call Buddhist exceptionalism. And Buddhist exceptionalism is the idea that Buddhism isn't really a religion, it's a mind science, or it's a therapy, or it's a philosophy, or it's a way of life. And so it's either not really a religion, or it's different from all other religions because it has this kind of special rational empirical scientific status. And my uh, argument in the book is that this is a fundamental misrepresentation of, of Buddhism, that Buddhism is fundamentally a religious tradition, and that when we treat it in this exceptionalist way, we're distorting Buddhism, and we're also not thinking properly about what religion is, what science is, and how the two of them should be uh, engaged with each other or talking to each other or, or in dialogue. And I came to write the book because I had been involved for so many years in dialogues between Tibetan Buddhists and Western scientists and philosophers. And, and the dialogues had been originally uh, meant to be dialogues that would bring out um, in, a, in a respectful way, acknowledging of differences, fundamental uh, kind of philosophical issues about mind and world and self and you know, human transformation. But as the dialogues progressed, there was a tendency to um, flatten them into a sometimes an attempt to validate Buddhism from a scientific perspective, or sometimes to show that Buddhism is itself a kind of science. And that made Buddhism somehow special and different from any other religious tradition that might enter into a similar dialogue, whether it be Christianity or Hinduism or Judaism. And I think this is part of the, the kind of cultural fetishizing of Buddhism that, that has happened with Buddhism in the modern world that, that some that historians call Buddhist modernism, this idea that, that Buddhism is um, more scientific than other religions or is itself a kind of science. And I think this is, this is really not what Buddhism is about. I think if we, if we, if we really uh, examine and understand Buddhism, then we have to face the, the central pivotal uh, ideas of Buddhism like nirvana, awakening, um, liberation, compassion. These are not scientific ideas. These are, these are philosophical, religious ideas. These are ethical ideas. And the idea that science would prove them is as confused as thinking that science would prove the validity of art. Exactly. It, it, it's just not, um, it's not, it's not the right way to think about their relationship. So the book is basically about that. Um, and in the course of the book, I defend a, a kind of alternative perspective as a philosopher, which is what's called cosmopolitanism, which is the idea that Buddhism is an extremely valuable 
religious intellectual tradition, and it should be one partner in a larger pluralistic conversation where it's not exceptionalized. And cosmopolitanism is the idea that um, that all human beings belong to to one community as human beings, and that we need to value different traditions as different traditions without trying to assimilate them all into one and that it's important that we be concerned for the welfare of the individuals in these different traditions and that we acknowledge differences and respect them without trying to uh, assimilate them or reduce them all down to to one thing especially on a on a scientific understanding of what that one thing is yeah that's fantastic it's it's like you know i'm, I'm a big fan of the idea of, of near enemies, you know, wherever you find light, you will find shadow, and, and conversely, wherever you find shadow, you will find light, and and to me, this this is just spot on, Evan, because, you know, the great gift of this uh, modern age with its information dissemination and the like is, this, in fact, this east-west cross-pollination, but the near enemy of that is cross-pollution, where you take tenants from one tradition and you misappropriately try to either conflate them or um, slam them into the other tradition, thinking that you know they're all saying the same thing, which was a common notion in the so-called perennial philosophy that has been uh, kind of taken apart. That you know at, at, at the apex, all these traditions are saying the same thing. Well, that may feel good um, from a kind of new age perspective, but is in fact that the way it really is? And so um, I love this idea of again just keeping the traditions honest and you know maintaining the the elegance and the beauty of of conversation communication um because that's probably the better of the two extremes instead of divisiveness is is the the, the kind of the aspiration to unite but again the, the near enemy of that is um conflation where all these things are just kind of slammed together into this kind of inarticulate mush that um, really has some shadow elements and uh, fly spots just abound and booby traps abound and all kinds of um, philosophical and even experiential traps abound. So what, what else can we expect? Are you putting up your armor for this one? Are you? Are you <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is. So the book is out this January. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I I don't I don't know what the reaction to it will be. I think you know, as as generally happens with these things, some some people will be happy, other people might not be so happy. Um, there's there's definitely some some critical stuff in it about a lot of the ways people try to put Buddhism and science together. I I really have come to think that um, that that uh, that's not the right way to look at the relationship. And that when that happens, it's it's always uh, slanted by um, by a privileging of of a kind of science or scientific discourse. And uh, you know, some of my friends are pretty invested in that in that project of putting Buddhism and science together. So maybe they won't be so happy. I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. It'll be it'll be interesting. You know, one of my favorite um, kind of maxims for shadow detection. You know, again in this kind of a passion I have for exploring darkness. Uh, that also includes shadow elements of the mind, um, uh, things like projection and transference and counter-transference and all that. And, and one one really helpful jingle in my life is, uh, I don't think it's categorically true, but I think it has vast applicability, is that whenever something affects you more than it informs you, 
you're probably dealing with a shadow or a projection. And, and so we'll see how many people are adversely affected by your book or in fact, um, you know, transformed. Um, but I can't wait to read it. I, I, I you know, with the rigor that you bring, um, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it's like, it's, it's really beautiful uh, combination of, of uh, conviction and humility um, because of the way you write, you know, you're, you're disarming and your openness. Um, and I think that, you know, that was inculcated with Francisco's incredible openness and his, his value of the open question and your ability to incorporate that in your writing is, I find it completely magnetizing and it makes me want to listen to you more um, because there's an inherent humility to that. It is really quite beautiful, Evan, and, and really attractive. And, and so um, I very much look forward to this next book and hope this kind of atmosphere carries over. So any, any final comments? How, how can people learn more about you? Um, how can they best support your work and what you do? Um, share some little information about how they can better get to know you and support what you're doing. Well, in terms of uh, just kind of keeping up with what I do, um, you know, they can do the usual social media things. You know, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and I've got a, you know, a web page that I actually am in, kind of in the process of revamping, but it's it's still up. And so people can kind of keep in touch with uh, with my writing and, and things like that that way. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say a, as a writer, um, uh, you know, I write so that, you know, people will react and say things. So I always want to know what people think. Um, I don't expect people to agree with me. In fact, I like it when they don't agree with me because I, you know, I learn more from, from, you know, people who have different reactions and responses to things. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, just eager to, to hear from people and know what, know what they think, uh, when they, when they read something, what their reactions are. That's awesome, my friend. Well, this has been an utter delight. Thank you so much for taking this time. I, I for one, had a terrific time. I mean, really just very illuminating um, as usual. And if it works for you a year from now, when this book is out, um, I would absolutely love to have you back on. Because really, the one thing I will say to my readers, or to my listeners, I should say, is that you know Evan's work is so all-encompassing and so vast that um, we've just hit on just a handful of the topics that he covers. I mean, the, the idea of inactivism, I think, should be exhaustively um, disseminated and propagated. Such an elegant way to look at reality. And let alone what you do, I mean, in Waking Dreaming Being, we could very easily do one entire kind of podcast on each and every chapter. Um, and so for listeners, I strongly recommend you pull out this incredible tome, Waking Dreaming Being, and you will find it a treasure trove of information, especially for your internal journeys. So Evan, thank you, dear friend. It means so much for me, uh, for me that you would take the time to do this. I very much look forward to future encounters with you and uh, keep on writing. You're doing a lot of good in this world. Thanks very much. I, I really appreciate the encouragement and uh, it's great to talk and I'm, I'm happy to come back and, and talk more. We'll do it. All the best, Evan. Take care, my friend. Okay, take care. Thanks. Bye now. <laughs>